Colin Mercer on Manx Radio. Pastor Mai, good afternoon and welcome to Perspective. On the programme this week... The Attorney General is the government's advisor sitting in Council of Ministers, also the advisor to the Crown and also a member of Tynwald and the extent to which those roles might start to conflict or cause problems. What does the Attorney-General do? Who is he accountable to? How is his work scrutinised? Should his role be split or the responsibilities reallocated? And could we soon see a Minister of Justice on the Isle of Man? These are all themes that were discussed in a public oral evidence session of a Timwald committee this week. The current Attorney-General, Mr John Quinn QC, appeared before the Constitutional and Legal Affairs and Justice Committee. That's made up of Jane Paul Wilson, MLC, who is chair, plus MHK's Laurie Hooper and Chris Robertshaw and the Clerk of Timwald, Roger Phillips. The panel last met with the AG in November last year to discuss the role, the workload and what it could look like in the future. This time round, Mrs Paul Wilson wanted to start with the matter of scrutiny of the role of AG here and specifically how far his personal work or personal advice ought to be scrutinised. Let's listen in. Well, firstly, as I hope I will explain, I do accept and agree that my role as attorney ought to be open to scrutiny. Uh, And I would like perhaps to put on record uh, for the benefit of the committee also um, the scrutiny that actually takes place currently. Firstly, by His Excellency the Lieutenant Governor, I meet with him monthly. And also, I should point out that our meetings don't just take place at Government House, but he also comes into chambers. So, crudely, he can see what we're about, and he can see the staff and has the opportunity of speaking with them. I then hold at least weekly meetings with the Chief Secretary when the work which my chambers and myself personally are dealing with reference to Government and its needs and the various departments is is clearly questioned uh, and then I take away from those meetings anything that I need to follow up, anything that needs to be addressed if there are any criticisms from either the Chief Secretary or alternatively from any of the departmental chief officers. Weekly then I then meet with the Council of Ministers and clearly as the committee will be aware, all of the ministers are currently or will be present Uh, and certainly they have the opportunity there and often do question me with reference to progress of work which may be being carried out in chambers and if there are any delays. I'm then scrutinised and accountable to Treasury in respect of revenue and financial affairs. I have a Chief Operating Officer who has delegated responsibility on my behalf with reference to matters in that regard and I'm sure the committee will be well aware that Treasury and its officers are often in contact uh, to ensure our compliance with the rules and to be kept updated with reference to any issues that we may have or they may have. Then, as far as my own work in reference to the legislation and the outcome, the production of the required legislation, I attend the Legislative Subcommittee of the Council of Ministers where a detailed analysis takes place with reference to the progress of the bills we're dealing with and also often with reference to um, any demands relating to secular legislation. I then have regular meetings personally with departments of government and the officers at various group meetings and the matters I particularly have in mind at the moment are the work that I carry out myself with reference to leading my team with reference reference to health transformation uh, and climate change. I am then clearly under scrutiny to the extent that the Information Commissioner will deal with the Freedom of Information requests that we receive uh, and I've got to look at those personally and ensure our compliance. I then deal with Uh, the scrutiny of prosecution decisions when called upon by victims to carry out a review, which I deal with personally. My dealings in that regard um, must meet the requirements, hopefully, of the victims who raise their concerns with me. I'm then scrutinised personally, and albeit it's through my officers very much uh, the case here, by the courts on petitions of dolience and on appeals. I'm then 
able to be questioned by members of Timwald and there's no restriction really on what they can ask me. Sometimes I have difficulties with the questions and the answers I can give but I'm there to be questioned and so scrutinised by them. And as I'm here today by committees of Timwald and I'm more than happy uh, to come and explain matters uh, to you and any other committee if they wish me to do so. Externally, uh, my work is then scrutinised by international authorities in respect of legal mutual assistance in criminal matters and by international authorities in respect of international standards. I'm thinking of FATF, Moneyval, where there's been a very helpful report recently uh, and clearly I've had a personal hand in the work that's being carried out there. My scrutiny extends then to issuing a Chamber's business plan and an annual report and inviting public comment on what I publish and that I provide as much information as I'm able in that regard. So I, I believe, Madam President, that there is a great deal of scrutiny, that I am and my work is open to scrutiny and I'm quite content for that to continue. There are limitations, which I'm sure you're aware of, where I have to assert legal professional privilege. My privilege in that regard is, is really akin to any lawyer advising a client where there's litigation privilege and legal advice privilege, uh, and sometimes the privilege is claimed with reference to freedom of information requests uh, by statute, and I'm thinking in that regard with reference to the policy exemptions. Then there is this question of the Attorney General's privilege, on which I'm aware there are questions as to the basis of its application. Uh, in summary, by convention, that privilege enables the Attorney to object to disclosure of information in the public or national interest, and in that regard I'm thinking of the interests of the island. But in that regard, I don't work in a vacuum, and if that privilege is claimed, then clearly I can be questioned and have to justify the claim that's made in that regard. So that, that essentially, my hope is helpful, but it does give an indication, I believe, of the extent of the scrutiny already in existence with reference to my role. Thank you, Mr Attorney. Perhaps if we could explore the extent of Tinwell scrutiny and the issue of privilege that you raised there at the end. <clears throat> I think last time when we met, you indicated that one of your roles might be to state the existing state of the law. So when you talk about legal privilege and that being a limitation on how you can answer questions that may be posed to you, particularly in Tinwalls, where do you draw the line between what you think might be subject to legal privilege and what you think is apt to share with Tinwald? I see no difficulty, Madam President, in answering a question uh, from Tinwald with reference as to the state of the law. Uh, I don't believe that, Tim, uh, that privilege would apply there. You don't believe privilege no. would apply. So when you are considering whether legal privilege applies, what are the, what are the tests or what are the parameters that you're, you have in mind? We'd have to sort of break that down to a particular set of circumstances, I think. If I've advised the Council of Ministers as to the law with reference to the entry restrictions, and I'm just trying to think of a topical matter at the moment, and I'm then asked by Tim Ward as to the advice which I've given the Council of Ministers in that regard, I would firstly have to consult with the Chief Minister, because of course under the Government Code I'm not allowed to, to sort of disclose that, but I would certainly have no problem in advising the Chief Minister that it ought to be disclosed. I, I see no difficulty there because I'm simply giving advice on the law, not necessarily on how it's applied, that's a matter for the Council of Ministers. What is therefore driving the hesitation is not legal privilege, it is the courtesy of consulting the Chief Minister because of the statutory bar on Comyn papers. In that situation, yes, I'd have to re refer to him. Right. And when it comes to um, the issue of Attorney General's privilege, last time when we spoke, I, I believe you referred to the importance of the Attorney General acting always in the public interest. Yes. And I, I suppose what I'm looking for is your approach to squaring the balance between not disclosing the basis of any advice 
through the Convention of Attorney General's privilege and when the public interest might demand that the public through Tinwald understand the basis of any advice? There will certainly be situations where, in the public or national interest, advice which have been, has been given ought not to be published. And I'm thinking of advice which is sensitive in the national interest to the island and United Kingdom. And I'm thinking where, for example, I have been approached by an authority outside the island to take steps in the Isle of Man, where the advice I've given and if that was disclosed, could be to the prejudice of, well, to public prejudice. But there are mechanisms already where members who are questioned by Tinwald, for example, can have their questions declined because uh, the minister, usually it is a minister, writes to the president to say it's against the national interests to publish this may I be allowed not to? And in my experience of the last 12 years, I, I can't think of an occasion when that permission has not been given. I wouldn't be aware of that. No, but what I'm saying is that, as opposed to having the minister say that without any scrutiny, it could be possible for you to approach the president, for example, and say, we, we can't right now afford to do this because... It may be something to do with money val or anything, the EU rules, it's too sensitive. And that might be immediately accepted, provided there was an external Tinwald-based filter that everyone regarded as a second guess, as it were. I've got no difficulty with that, Madam President. Um, Mm. It hasn't arisen in in my time, I don't think, apart from perhaps flagging up a matter that was subdued the same. What I mean is that as an alternative to claiming Attorney General's privilege, which isn't easily subject to scrutiny. It would be one way of allowing Tinwald an entry point into saying, not interfering with attorney-client privilege, not legal professional privilege, but the one that you're claiming as being in your judgment in the general interest, it shouldn't be published, that sort of thing, that you could talk to the president and get the president's consent. You wouldn't need the president's consent in terms of the convention at the moment. I mean, if you're talking about the fact that if you exercise the privilege, and I can't think of a situation in my mind at the moment, that I then had to report to the president, I've got no difficulty with that, but I I don't think it's a question of consent, is it? Well, that's the point, is that it is not generally, not agreed by everybody, if we put it that way, that this privilege actually exists. And I've acknowledged that. Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely, I know that we, we, <laughs> we've spoken about this many times, yes. but what I'm looking for is an alternative or a set of arrangements rather than a claim by your office, you as your, or your successors. It could be something which would be to enable Timwald, as the representatives of the public, to have some sort of an opinion and consent about the expression of this. I think it, many people off Ireland have commented that actually, really, the determiner of the public interest is Parliament. We all know you can't te- share all facts all the time, but sometimes for a particular moment when you want to be discreet, it might be a way of negotiating the, the parameters of the exercise of that that exception yes. that is being imposed. If you f- felt that could work, then that's a very interesting comment. Um, I, I don't know whether it could work, uh, because we're, we're, we're talking in very general terms. I, I see no difficulty in the context of if, for whatever reason, the attorney in, in his role considered, be it at the behest of the United Kingdom or at the behest of the the government here, uh, that information ought not to be disclosed to the national interest, that there ought perhaps to be a reporting mechanism that this has been done. But I don't see how I could necessarily say that that ought to be with the consent of Timor. They they can question it, they can challenge it, and I think of the... My, my, my U, uh, colleague in the UK being questioned and challenged uh, by Parliament there. But um, 
I think that's really where it's got to lie, that Parliament could raise the question uh, glibly, uh, Mr Attorney, you've seen fit to impose or, or whatever Attorney General's privilege in relation to the request for disclosure of this information, can you please justify? Uh, and I could explain that. So can I ask then in the, in the in in that context, so your your argument essentially is that the decision surrounding the use or otherwise of, of that level of, of that convention should sit with the Attorney General rather than actually sitting with some somebody that has oversight essentially because at the moment for example when you make that decision as to <clears throat> not release a piece of information or a piece of advice that you provided on the basis that it's it's privileged that's a decision that you make and there isn't a process that anyone can challenge that decision there isn't a, an oversight body for example the council of ministers couldn't say actually mr attorney we disagree with you we think the public interest is served by publishing this advice you've provided to us so we, we think you should publish it the decision still sits with the attorney general Currently. Okay, so how does that compare then with the with uh, the requirements under the Freedom of Information Act? The Chief Minister wrote to Timor members some time ago in response to a question from Ms. Castain, setting out uh, the terms as he understood them uh, in respect of Attorney General's privilege. He makes specific reference in there to Section 341C of the Freedom of Information Act, uh, which is a qualified exemption only. It's not an absolute exemption, which means if a person would have put an FOI request in uh, for a piece of legal advice that had been provided, uh, used during the formulation of policy, um, mm. whilst the policy was under formulation, that qualified exemption may apply. The Attorney General would say, nope, the qualified exemption applies, you can't, you can't uh, disclose this. But actually the Information Commissioner could overrule that decision. You could appeal that decision to the Information Commissioner. So through the Freedom of Information Act, any legal advice the Attorney General has provided could be published. There, isn't, there is no provision, no absolute exemption inside the FOI yeah. Act itself. And so it seems quite unusual then that on the one hand we have a piece of law that says this advice that is provided by the Attorney General to the Alabama government is not subject to an absolute privilege, uh, but actually you're saying that if I don't put an FOI request in, it is subject to absolute privilege. There seems to be a conflict there between uh, the Freedom of Information Act and how that works in practice compared to actually how you're saying your, your decision-making does work in practice at the moment. So I suppose what I'm getting at is if I really wanted to get hold of the legal advice you provided to the Council of Ministers, I could submit an FOI request. That's what it boils down to. But you would have the power at the moment to simply say, no, I'm not going to provide you that in the context of a Timwald answer, for example. Yeah. So if a member of Timwald tables a question, you assert that actually the Attorney General can decide whether or not to release that information. But if that same Timwald member places an FOI request in, that public interest test is actually undertaken by the Information Commissioner. Well, he would review the, the basis upon which the decision had been made to withhold the information, simplistically, and if he, if he reached a conclusion with which I did not agree, then, then of course the, the matter would then go to before the courts. So, in fact, there is a, an avenue of appeal, which I think yes. is, is where we're trying to get to. Yes, I, I don't have the absolute power here, at the end of the day, uh, that the courts could interfere. I'm a public officer. I suppose what we're exploring is how the use of privilege should be scrutinised. Yeah. So th th there is a mechanism through the Freedom of Information Act. And, and what's interesting is when it comes to qualified exempt information, to qualify under that definition, first of all, it has to be the type of information you're talking about. So something on which advice has been sought or advice has been given. But also the public interest in maintaining the exemption outweighs the public interest in disclosing the information. And I suppose the interesting aspect of the Attorney General's role is who ultimately is the client. To what extent is the public the client and how are you balancing the competing aspects of public interest and how does Tinwald's have that oversight. So you, you've said you could respond to questions in Tinwald, yes. but if the matter were extremely sensitive, I, how effective would that be? And so I suppose we're looking for other ways or, or to get your views on ways in which Tinwald can exercise in the public interest some level of scrutiny over exercise of exemptions, privilege, whatever you want to call it, yeah. and to get your thoughts. I, I mean, apart from sharing the fact that the privilege has been asserted, if we call it that, and being called upon to explain why, I may then have to go, as the learner clerk has indicated, to the president to explain, I just can't tell them why, 
and explain why that is the situation to the president, then that, that would hopefully prevent the question being posed. But if the president decided no, an explanation is deserved but for Timberland members, then I would could go as far as I could. Very difficult. And I don't, I, I don't sit here thinking to myself, I want to exert the attorney's privilege all the time. I don't think I've ever done it. Uh, perhaps I have. Well, I was about to ask you, how often have you done this? Because it's a very, I mean, it's at the bottom of all your correspondence. Yes. And yet, if if you're not sure you've ever done it, and I can't remember it ever being done, it, it's a very strange thing to to assert in a way, because if in your period of office it's never been necessary, one wonders, you know, why it exists. You can think of circumstances where it would exist, but what's interesting is that Whereas for the normal legal professional privilege, the Council of Ministers takes responsibility and owns it, yes. you do in these strange cases, but you can't think of one that has arisen. It's not arisen in my time, thankfully. thankfully. I know we've had interesting discussions about... It's all been theoretical, hasn't yes, it? <laughs> uh, and it's theoretical today, but I know that other jurisdictions have it, uh, and this isn't sort of a cop-out, if I can put it that way, and it clearly has been used in other jurisdictions. Uh, but I, I can't think of a situation, well, I know I haven't come across a situation here on the island where I've had to resort to that, if we put it that way. There have been challenges over privilege, which one way or another you can usually negotiate around mm. that problem. Mm. Uh, and I've been very keen to ensure that we do when possible. But I don't think we've actually hit a brick wall on that, even to the extent of inviting a committee to sit in private to look at information, um, that, that's available uh, and that has been done appropriately um, to protect the parties uh, who might be concerned if, if there's any publication of the evidence or advice that's been given. So perhaps if we move on then to explore another theme that we talked about last time, which is the, the, the many conflicts uh, due to the, the many hats that the um, Attorney General has to wear. And I think it is relevant to this point we've just talking about, about the filters to determine appropriate use of privilege or exception and what is in the public interest. One of the issues I think we explored last time is the fact that the Attorney General is the government's advisor sitting in Council of Ministers, also the advisor to the Crown, and also a member of Tynwald and the extent to which those roles might start to conflict or cause problems. And I wondered whether you thought there would be any benefit in separating out more the advisory, legal advisory part of the Attorney General's role from the Crown and public interest aspects of the Attorney General's role. I don't see any problem. I think, as I've tried to explain mm. the last sitting uh, with the, the various roles, that they, they can be and are managed appropriately, in my view, to the extent that I do identify a conflict or the client indicates that they consider it a conflict, then we, we have the opportunity within Chambers uh, now of having the Solicitor General uh, available. Uh, and quite often, it, it is quite often that we do separate out particular matters to be dealt with in chambers where I perceive that there could be questions of conflict. I think last time when we met though it was made clear that both the Solicitor General and the Attorney General are Crown officers with first allegiance to the Crown and the Solicitor General role is able to deputise in full for the Attorney General so they, they are in effect the same or they're covering the same areas so in practice is it really possible to separate out the crown and public interest duties from the legal advice advisory role to the government where these things start to conflict i believe so uh, again it's few few and far between it's more where personally uh, in my role as attorney, I, I feel that I may be conflicted, that I would then defer to the Solicitor General. But in practice, from sitting advising government or on the law, I'm not part of their policy formation or their decision-making. 
Um, so I've, I've never really had any difficulty then with the various hats I, I actually wear. My understanding, and forgive me if I've got this wrong, uh, Mr Attorney, is that you sit throughout, you, you attend all of Council of Ministers' I do. discussions, which will include policy, deliberation and decision-making. Yeah. The same, same happens in Timwald as well. I'm not privy to, to all of those discussions, obviously, but it, it's, it's perfectly possible that in advising on the state of the law, the line, of course, is crossed between the state of the law and how to make a decision bearing in mind the law, which is where we pick up legal advice privilege. Would you say that that is part of the discussion in Council of Ministers from time to time? Okay. What criticism would you make of greater separation of the two roles, your role and the Solicitor General's role, in the sense that one ceased to be a Crown appointment, one became more executive and the other retain more of the Crown appointment side of the work. Have you got, are you uncomfortable with that concept? I, I'm certainly not uncomfortable with the concept. All I would do is wave a white flag and say, I need some help with the amount of work I've got to do, please. As in, in which, which as advisor to government or as, as well, Crown? No, well, sorry, you, you've seen the extent of my role, which the, mm. the general we call it, uh, shadows, uh, it is quite a big role. Uh, there are only so many hours in the day. Well, surely the separation would, to some degree, reduce the Crown appointment role. If, for example, if the Solicitor General sat in the Council of Ministers instead of yourself and adopted other executive roles, that does reduce your role. I'm a bit confused by your answer. I'd be more than happy for the Solicitor General to sit in the Council of Ministers. Fortunately, he's here listening to this to share the role. I do not personally have to attend the Council of Ministers. I think Mr Robert Shaw was asking you a slightly different question, if I may. I think what he was asking was, do you see any obstacle to the Crown officer being, say, the Attorney General, totally separate from the Solicitor General, who is not a Crown officer, but who is the Chief Legal Advisor to the Government? So the two roles don't, you don't share an office, you're, you're separate. I can see no, no difficulty with that. The development of the role of Sister General in the Isle of Man, uh, it's a new role and it's developing in time. And I'm very fortunate insofar as I've been able to make the best use of the Sister General in my mind. He's taken over many of my international cooperation obligations, uh, dealing with money value and things of that nature. Um, he's travelled, I haven't got the time to travel, so he's been a great help. It's a developing role, Mr. Robinson, I'm Madam President. So, so, whether or not in the context of the better delivery of the attorney's role, uh, there should be a separation in some way, um, I, I think that's something that could be looked at. I'm not saying it ought not to happen. Mm. Um, so, I, I wonder whether then you would be kind enough after this evidence yes. session perhaps to write to us with some considered thoughts because I think what the committee is exploring is not only I suppose the sheer workload which I, which you're you're touching on but also how that workload is allocated to try and perhaps help with some of the other challenges of conflict within both roles as they stand so both being crown officers both being involved in legal advice to government and if there were another approach whereby one of the roles was purely the Crown appointment with duties attached to that, public interest duties and so on, and the other was the head of the government legal machine, all about giving government legal advice and so on, whether that would be a model uh, that could be explored moving forward. So if you're willing to write to us with your considered thoughts, because recognise it's probably something you want to reflect on a bit more. Yes, uh, I'll, I'll be very happy to do that. Um, could, could you... If I could just throw it to me, if, if I may. Um, I've always been conscious that as the, the scope and extent of the shared legal service which Chambers offers grows, um, that that creates challenges. And if you... I mean, we can look to larger jurisdictions, we can look to the UK... To, to Jersey in some ways where they have the separate law office crown office and in the UK they have the Treasury Solicitor who's more dealing with the advice, the day-to-day -day advice to, to government. It's a question of scale 
and we do tend in the Isle of Man to cramp everything into to one as many many hats as we can into one person and say get on with it. Um, so it could be that there is a better model for delivery, and, I, and I'm not. I've always said that I'm an attorney who's keen to see change, but not change for change's sake, but to achieve something. I, I'm quite happy to do that, but um, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. I mean, I might would, get would, shot for doing it, but would you? Would you mind including your thoughts on how uh, legal advice would be prov provided to a Minister of Justice, for example? To a Minister of Justice. I think a, a further point on that, actually, which is, again, something that the committee would value your thoughts on, is one of the areas that uh, the Wooler report tackled or, or made recommendations around was the uh, relationship between the Attorney General and the prosecution division and I think last time we met you indicated that in February 2016 you received approval in principle from the then Minister from Home Affairs to fully implement yes. uh, the Wooler recommendations around that. I, I'd like to come back that, to that in a minute but one other thought that I think would be helpful to hear from you on is whether if that Wooler recommendation was fully implemented and somebody becomes just the superintendent of the director of prosecutions with the director of prosecutions making all the prosecution decisions whether the oversight for the efficiency and effective running of the prosecutions division could actually sit with the minister of justice and a standalone crown appointee in the attorney general's role who had no involvement in executive advice might be the arbiter of the public interest if the Director of Prosecutions had to turn somewhere to test whether a prosecution should proceed in the public interest. So just be quite interested in in your thoughts on that being also part of the model. Do you have in mind um, what the Ministry, Minister of Justice will actually be doing? Is that a, a glib question? I'm just trying to sort of put that into context of what you're saying. Um, I think, I think at the time this committee made the recommendation which was accepted, we could see that there was a gap in the executive for oversight of the entirety of the justice. Uh, and so we would expect that there is political policy direction from that minister around what the justice system should look like and how it should operate. Obviously, no direct interference with individual decisions such as prosecution or judicial decision making, but then there should be the ability for the Minister of Justice to <coughs> engage with all parts of the justice system to check it is effectively and efficiently delivering on those policy objectives and be subject to scrutiny in tin walls um, and accountable for making sure that the justice system operates efficiently and effectively. We took evidence from the Chief Secretary in December and it was his evidence that he would have in due course be consulting with the learned attorney as to the parameters of the Minister of Justice remit and the parameters of the learned attorney's role and other relevant roles. There are examples of course that we're all familiar with oh, yes. across uh, of sensitive issues like sentencing guidelines being given some element of parliamentary scrutiny, yes. which could be replicated here to some extent. But your your thoughts on all of those areas would be. I do have the pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Just just for the record, just to understand how uh, it's normal for His Excellency to scrutinise your role. Would he or she normally look right across the whole range of the roles that you carry, or is he, in this instance, um, concerned with your, your crown appointment element only? Just, just for the record. Um, I think in our, in our discussions, Madam President, it's, it's very wide-ranging. Um, yeah, okay. He's not my employer, but I think he would take a very keen interest in the operation of Chambers. He wanted to meet my directors, which he did, um, and um, invited us all up there collectively to, to meet us as a group. So he was certainly showing interest in the delivery of Chambers legal services to that extent. My meetings with him clearly tend to relate to 
any difficulties that he may have, where he may need some advice from me, um, which would essentially, um, where matters have been referred to him by members of the public, where he might need some guidance mm. in his role as governor. Mm. Um, so that, that's my meetings with him, but I, I can say uh, we are fortunate in our, uh, our, our governor mm. taking an interest in chambers as a whole. Indeed. and the well-being of the staff. Something that uh, I wanted to come back to, uh, Mr Attorney, a while ago you sent us quite a big table of the different statutory and other duties that are come within the Attorney General's role. I think I'm, I recollect that you said it wasn't a full table, there were other duties that were still being uncovered or added to the table, but I wondered whether that table has been updated, whether it is complete and whether you might be able to send us a, a copy of the latest version, please. It hasn't been updated, we haven't had the time to do that. Um, it's a sort of shared role with the Capital Office and Chambers and um, I'll, pursue, I'll continue to do so. Okay, so the, the version so we I've, have I've is... Got, I've got nothing new from what I had previously submitted. Touching on the the Wooler recommendation around the the further separation of the director of prosecution role from the attorney general role, you mentioned that you had approval in principle, but that I, I think you said that nothing further had progressed. What actually does need to happen for that recommendation to be fully implemented? Currently, it would be the Department of Home Affairs would uh, progress the move to change the legislation to enable that to happen. Um, it okay. would be quite a big task. But, so it would have to crudely be added to the government's programme. And when you say quite a big task, could you explain why it's such a big task? Uh, we'd have to make significant changes to private legislation. This is because of the amount of references to the prosecuting authority and there wouldn't be a, a way of amending across the board in a more straightforward way. I, I can't fall into that trap, I don't mean that in the wrong way, mm -hmm. but it would be glib of me to say it, it could be done easily. Uh, we haven't done the exercise of what changes are necessary other than the fact that I can say with certainty, as I'm sure you would appreciate, um, we will need changes to primary legislation. If we could think about uh, recruitment to the role in the future. Um, it's our understanding from the evidence we took from the Chief Secretary that the recruitment process is currently open to applicants from off-island. That's correct. Okay. What is your view on that? I think that's appropriate. I did have a quick look yesterday. There have been examples. I don't know whether the learner clerk is aware of um, appointments as Attorney General from Off-Island, but we go back to 1730, to so Wadsworth Busk, uh, and then followed... Clark's not that old, but... Hotfoot no. in... Um, and he served until uh, 1797, and then there was a chap called Charles Richard Ogden, who came in 1844. So we, we have had sort of non-Manx advocates who have sat as attorney here. The obvious benefit is that if there, from my personal perspective, there's no suitable candidate on Ireland, um, then that ought to happen. Clearly, we, we need to have somebody sitting in this hot seat. The report of the uh, Council Minister in 2005 had a very helpful memorandum from Dean Mr Kane, which I'm sure you may have considered. Um, at that time, there were 100 members of the Manx Bar, and he expressed the view then that that number ought to enable the Max Bar to fill the role of attorney. There are clearly advantages to that with reference to uh, their experience in Max law and practice here, whereas somebody from the UK, albeit very learned and very well practiced and versed in English procedures, would not have that knowledge. I'm not saying they couldn't gain it, but they wouldn't have that knowledge. Um, I'm not going to go into the realms of, in my view, uh, a practitioner of some standing and of length of service here may have a better understanding of the Manx culture when applying the public interest test because I'm sure a very experienced member of the UK bar or wherever would, would have no difficulty with that. 
But today we have something like over 275 <coughs> members of Manx Bar, so a bigger pool. Um, significantly from my point of view, and something I've tried to encourage, we have also developed, or that I view, a, a better career structure in public law on the island. Uh, so now, as I sit here, there are 30 lawyers in chambers, two of which are Crown officers, um, uh, and there's a, a, a pool there, perhaps better versed in some ways, to, to deal with many of the issues which I have to deal with as uh, attorney. So there are advantages, uh, clearly in my view, in trying to recruit locally, but it should be open, so hopefully the best candidate will be appointed. Given that view uh, uh, is expressed against the, the existing role that you fulfil and, and the uh, huge panoply of responsibilities you've got, would that recruitment advice change if there was a degree of separation that we were discussing earlier between executive advice and the Crown appointment itself? And if you don't want to answer that now or don't feel comfortable about it, could you consider answering it in your submission to us about the separation of the role? Uh, I can certainly deal with that, Madam President. Do you see any particular benefits to an off-island candidate? I suppose filling either role, either the um, either of the Crown Officer roles at the moment. Not really. Okay, we've got to look at it in the context of the small community we live in. And I talk personally now from a personal experience. Having come from practice, having come from a short period of time uh, working for a large public company here, uh, there were concerns uh, of uh, the fact that uh, not perception of bias, but that I might be, have been influenced in my decisions because of past dealings for clients or whatever. Uh, that's always a problem. Uh, I've never had a problem with it, but I have had some sympathy with people thinking, well, he was in practice for 30-odd years, he was senior partner of this and was involved in that case or, or whatever, represented the good and the bad over the years, no doubt. Um, and what bearing does that have on me uh, as attorney? Um, you, you would lose that, I suppose. But similarly, you know, somebody could come here with, I use the expression loosely, similar baggage from across. So who, who knows? I don't in any way mean to be impertinent when I say this, but I think one of the difficulties is a practical one, isn't it? That not many people necessarily who are in practice on the island want to be Attorney General. I don't know the answer to that question. I, was I mean, there weren't very many... Up? There weren't very many applicants, I believe, last time. <clears throat> I, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I, I wouldn't, though. It is a difficulty, isn't it, that not everybody wants to be Attorney General. It's a, it's a very, very interesting role, very important, but not everybody necessarily wants to do that. For a lot of very good advocates locally, it would mean a very significant cut in their income. So... You know, it's a, it, it, to some extent, isn't it, it, it one of the advantages of spreading the net more widely is you get more candidates. Well, yes. I mean, that must be true. Yeah. Much like recruiting deemsters, really, isn't it? Or the governor. Well, the governor's a special case in a yeah, way, because it's, many it's, people it's would actually want someone who wasn't from round here. But, but deemsters, you know, if you look at all the deputy deemsters, I mean, there's a very, very strong representation from across... Which is a shame. I mean, well, I but it is what it is. Bar should try and fill these, these seats. But what, including Judge of Appeal? The, including Judge of Appeal? Yeah. Uh, in, in a perfect world... But it isn't, is like, it? But, sorry, I mean, uh, there's nothing wrong with our Judge of Appeal. No, no, not at all. But, but the Judge of Appeal role, has, from the Timor perspective, has... has always been considered to be a helpful if, if the Judge of Appeal comes in with fresh hands, if you like, or a fresh mind. Uh, I was just comparing that to your commentary about elements of the 80s role not being conflicted by um, historical engagement and association on the island. Well, I, I clearly see the advantages of an off-island Judge of Appeal. Harking back to what uh, Mr Robert Shaw put to you earlier, if there were two roles, one being the chief legal advisor of the government, that would make sense to have a, a Manx advocate who understood Manx law. But in your Crown Officer role, a lot of your work is to do with treaties and to do with off-island connections, where actually practice locally wouldn't necessarily be that relevant to preparation. 
if the roles were split. Could be the case. Mm. Thinking about the whole recruitment process further, I think when we met last time you indicated that it might be, in terms of increased transparency and involvement from from the perspective of representation of the public, it might be of interest to have another member of TIN will join the recruitment panel. Have you had any other thoughts about how the recruitment process might be made more transparent or who else might be involved at the recruitment stage? Madam Chair, I I haven't. Um, I'm not involved in the process. Um, I I was going to say to you today that uh, I I ought not to be involved, uh, but what I I do urge is that I I could have some contribution um, to the role description, um, because I think if you see what they're offering or what, what they're actually looking for now, there's no resemblance whatsoever to what I've got to do. And that sort of comes from practice whether they've been forced to do it or whatever, uh, it needs to be reconsidered. But mm. who should sit on the panel? I shouldn't really comment. Mm-hmm. But I can't see the advantage in having a Tim World member there. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the representatives of the panel at the moment, I believe it's the Chief Minister, the President of Tinwald and the First Deemster. Now, at least two of those are potential clients, the Chief Minister <coughs> and arguably at the moment the President of Tinwald. From the perspective that that they are clients and more often than not likely to be lay people in that they're they're not necessarily going to have a legal background themselves, do you think there's any need for additional representation on the panel that might explore the the legal spectrum of candidates coming forward and their their ability to take on the breadth of the role and particularly picking up, I suppose, more of the public law aspects of the role? I can see the advantages of that. I mean, just again from personal experience, I mean, the cross examination during the interviews from the, the first teams in the context of law, he puts you to, to task, um, which is fine. Um, as in my case, the deemster would have seen me in practice, he would have dealt with me in practice, would have seen the court cases I was involved in, whereas somebody else wouldn't. So perhaps there does need to be more of a legal aspect to the panel than what's there at the moment, rather than just relying on the first teamster. Mm-hmm. Possibly, what would your view be about the Judge of Appeal joining the panel? Yes, I see the sense in that. In terms of the status of the Attorney General's role as a Crown appointee, that was felt to be important for a number of reasons, not least the importance of independence, the fact that you have to advise and do advise the Lieutenant Governor and the public interest perspective, would would that still be your view? Yes. So no, it, it, the, the Attorney General role should not be seen and treated as a civil servant? I, I could see no advantage to that. If we were exploring the division of responsibilities so that the Attorney General became purely the Crown Officer role that we talked about before and perhaps the Solicitor General became the advisor to government, the head of the government legal machine, what then might the Solicitor General role be better positioned as a civil servant as opposed to a Crown officer? I I think, Madam President, you you, you did make the distinction before that you were perhaps looking at the Solicitor General not being a Crown officer, Mm. then certainly in that context he ought to be a civil servant. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. The civil service regulations that do apply, do you think they are appropriate and work well in relation to the position of a Crown officer such as yourself? Well, I say it's challenging. I mean, clearly, as an accountable officer, I have to comply uh, with all of the rules that come with that. Um, so that adds to the workload. Being the head of an office is no easy task when dealing with the formal requirements that are made of us in that role. The disciplinary process doesn't work effectively, um, and that's across the civil service. It's not just in the context of uh, the Attorney General. Um, it needs to be updated, improved, uh, as a matter of urgency, in my view. In terms of the accountable officer uh, responsibilities, again, thinking about a separation of Crown duties from executive duties, the accountable officer function would then presumably move to the executive function or aspects of the role? Uh, uh, yes, 
uh, depending on how, how it's structured, if, if there is a separate Crown office, so it could well be that the attorney sitting in the Crown office would remain as a, an accountable officer. Just touching back on the recruitment side of things, so you've uh, expressed a wish to be sort of consulted on the preparation of the job description, which makes quite a lot of sense, I think. I offer to help. Uh, the, the, uh, <laughs> the question I really had was in terms of uh, trying to attract more uh, local candidates for the role. Uh, do you see that you have a role in, in that in some way as well, kind of promoting uh, the, the office, promoting the functions, <coughs> try and actually encourage people who are qualified Manx advocates to submit themselves for consideration? I mean, we've taken a similar approach with uh, the president of Timwell being responsible for kind of promoting the, the environment, promoting diversity and equality within uh, within Timwell Court. I'm just wondering if there, as, a, as head of the Manx Bar, whether you have a role in actually trying to encourage the development of, of Manx advocates to try and come forward for uh, the role of Attorney General in the future. We are building a very dedicated and skilled set of public lawyers in chambers. Uh, and certainly, if there was the type of separation which has been mentioned, you could see that quite a few of those people in chambers may well be well qualified uh, to be considered for that role. Whether or not it is attractive to the, the local bar uh, to consider public law as an option, I think comments already been made uh, that uh, they may have to take a significant drop in salary. Whether we'll be ever able to attract people other than myself, the type of person like myself, sort of like in semi-retirement and then wondering why I did it, um, <laughs> then um, that's, that's going to be the problem. You're going to get people naturally, I think, from the local bar who are only going to be interested if it, they're sort of coming to the end of their career and are prepared to make the sacrifice. That was the Attorney General, John Quinn QC, giving evidence to a Timwald committee this week. Thank you for listening. Take care.